Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Today, I'm really excited to have Chris Carter on the podcast, who is the Executive Director Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at, at Shula School of Business. This is a special one for me because Chris helped me when I was just dabbling in the entrepreneurial world, I want to say about seven years ago, which is wild. And at, I think around the same time, you were just starting Shulet Startup. So for me to see um, you grow this thing that was pretty minuscule into this really incredible community um, and startup space for so many entrepreneurs in Canada is is mind-blowing. I'm so excited to hear about your journey and how, how we got here. Chris is a serial entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience in the digital, digital and tech space, a sought-after advisor, investor, and advisory board member, member. and you were the co-founder of FinData, which was Canada's largest uh, marketing automation tool and exited in 2018. And today you lead what I'm going to define as all things entrepreneurship at Schulich. Uh, for example, the entrepreneurial studies, Schulich startup nights, and the list goes on and on. Um, as could this bio go on and on, but I will cut it short and I will start off the conversation, Chris, with asking you a little bit about your journey and how you did end up here at Schulich running the Schulich startup. Well, thanks, Kelly. It's exciting to be here for me. And, uh, I was instantly drawn in by how it be, how, how I became as uh, as a key uh, theme going throughout my my life and my career. Well, I I started off um, way back as a journalism graduate from Metropolitan University, and in the very beginning, um, everyone asks you why did you start a business? Why did you get into entrepreneurship? Well, my story is is a little bit practical, which is that. Already back then, the media was starting to lay people off. And originally, I wanted to be a, a reporter for a national newspaper. But the writing was quickly on the wall. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I could make my own newspaper, make my own publication. But as I went out to explore that, I quickly found that there was another problem was that I couldn't afford paper. Probably the same reason why the, why the newspapers themselves were in, in such trouble. But a friend of mine working at a small community publication, he'd always been walking around. This is back in 1995, talking about how, well, pretty soon we're not going to need paper anymore. We're going to put this whole thing on the Internet and everyone is going to read it around the world and it won't just be read locally and it will be amazing. And so as I was sitting here, we'd both gone our separate ways and uh, he was uh, he was off working on different things. This is now back in 95, like I said, so. Uh, no LinkedIn or Facebook and very few people had even like cell phones or email accounts. So I sat with the phone book for four days to find him after we had parted ways because we weren't working in the same spot anymore. And uh, sat with the phone book for four days calling Crawford, so that's his last name, until I finally got to his mom under the L's, Louise. And um, she picked up the phone and said, he's here. Uh, he lives with me. That's why you can't find him in the phone book under the seas where he was or should have been. And uh, I talked to him, went over to his house on the streetcar that night over on Broadview. He showed me the internet for the first time, asked him a lot of questions, um, asked if he could make these webpage things that he was showing me. He said, yes, he was doing that in his spare time. And uh, we went into business together that night and decided we would make our first publication together. And uh, from there, it's a long and interesting journey of entrepreneurship that we could get into from building, building that magazine, selling it to the Fan 590, the sports radio station, uh, building a web development company, eventually wanting to have a platform that had a SaaS uh, you know, component to its revenue model, and seeing that many of my clients uh, needed uh, email marketing and marketing automation. And so we built that platform and that became what was the largest business of the different things that we worked on and eventually sold that back in 2008. How I landed here with the Schulich School of Business is that one day uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to come and guest lecture in Graham Dean's mergers and acquisitions class. And he wanted to hear the story with his students about the sale of thin data. And it was very open about like, the good and the bad of that and kind of like the part of me that loved that decision, part of me that wishes I'd never made that decision to sell and all of the emotional turbulence that came with um, going through that transition in life and selling the company. And the students seemed to love it. I loved it. And I started coming back every once in a while to Schulich. And eventually I realized, well, there's no startup program here. 
And I thought that's a really interesting opportunity. I was looking for a next big challenge in life. People asked me, why did I come to an academic institution? Because they were saying, look, it's going to be slow and it's yeah. going to be harder to, you know, move in the way you'd like to compared to uh, running a business. But uh, my answer was, um, my life has been filled with many different puzzles. I have worked on businesses. I've worked on political campaigns. I've worked on global nonprofits. And the one thing I hadn't put my hand on was the academic uh, side of things. And I said, let's go try this Conquer puzzle that one too. and see what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, and um, so if you want, I'll tell you more about what happened after that. But I decided I would find a way to create a really interesting opportunity at Shula Care at the, at the business school. I want to hear a bit more about that. So you had the idea. I want to do something at Schulich. I'm going to conquer the academic world. What did that look like to where you are today? And maybe explain a little bit about what Schulich startups are. Yeah, well, in the beginning, um, the career center here at the business school uh, first suggested, hey, would you like to come in and just coach students once a month, come in, sit down, take over some offices at the career center? And uh and share some ideas with them about the businesses that they're building. And I said, that's great. But what about if, and so what we also pitched was the idea that I would start bringing in friends of mine from the innovation ecosystem, and we would take over the whole career center once a month and up and down the road, students could go getting different insights and different perspectives from people. Like a speed dating yeah, idea. Yeah. So Very they cool. can get multiple perspectives. And then I pitched the idea of having the Schulich startup night competition and said, let's do it in one of the boardrooms of uh, one of my companies at the time. And uh, so they loved that. And as it went, as things went uh, along, every month I was most excited about coming up to the business school and least excited about working on the different companies that I was invested in and set up with. And um, I was like, I really wish I could just do that. One day I said that to one of my friends, He's a leader in the ecosystem, really great guy. Um, Barry Hillier is his name, who built Equo and uh, Cabinish, a, a new company in the coffee, tea, and hot chocolate space, uh, where he's partnered up with two amazing indigenous uh, entrepreneurs. And uh, But back then I was talking with Barry and I was like, I really wish I could go just like um, work at Schulich all the time. And he said this famous one line, which I always thank him for. He said, you're never trapped, man. And I was like, yeah, I'm never trapped. I don't have to be what I am right now. I can go and like start a whole new career and a whole new experience. And so um, literally within days, I told my business partners and told my family, um, I'm going to Schulich. I'm going to go sit in the uh, CIBC marketplace there in the cafe. I'm going to take my laptop and I'm going to build the startup program for free. And eventually it will start to gain so much momentum. Yep that the dean will come down from the third floor, Dean Horbath. He will take me to lunch and he will demand to know what is happening. And when I explain everything to him, what we're building and what's taking place, he'll be so excited that he'll hire me. Right. And that will be how I'll get my dream job and start my academic journey. And, and that's exactly what happened. That's what happened. Um, that is, it's amazing. And I want to sh I want the listeners to know a little bit about what Schulich startup are now so a few years down the line and you've had some time to really build it um and build an incredible community around it so what what does it look like elevator pitch of Schulich startups and well the, the the highlights now are that we have you know many years after sitting there with my laptop we have 220 companies that are all Schulich students alumni or faculty so york university has yspace our big accelerator for the whole institution and I support with that, but I don't lead that. That's yep. led by an amazing team there. They service the wider university. Yep. But we had so many entrepreneurs coming out of Schulich that we had the opportunity just to provide service and support for the students and the alumni exclusively. So that's now 220 companies. In the last uh, 24 months, uh, that group has raised $60 million in funding. And um, we also do all the placements for students to go to work at startups, go to work in the venture capital community, uh, 100 plus placements that we do every year, 30 events that we run, um, uh, have worked together with faculty to redesign parts of the curriculum and hire new instructors to come in and teach in the program. Um, and it's a bustling, booming community 
that now is being called upon and contracted by different levels of government to design entrepreneurial programs and accelerators, uh, both at the federal and provincial and municipal level as well, too. Uh, the real amazing part of all this, in terms of what I get excited telling people, is that back at that lunch, when the dean you know, hired me, he said, well, I'll hire you and I'll give you your contract. But other than that, you have no budget. You've got a dollar. So everything that's been built now with the whole team, the space, all the programs and initiatives that we've done has all been bootstrapped as a startup inside the institution. And everything is paid for by sponsorships, um, by donations from um, uh, the alumni, uh, from government contracts where we go and get support or ways that we provide support to different parts of the university and then they'll pay us for our services. So we literally designed a business inside the Schulich School of Business that would be self-sustaining and could go out and grow and, uh, and build. So that was like one key piece. And the second key piece is that because we didn't have any money, we couldn't go out and hire, you know, immediately um, a whole team of people to do like, an, you know, a programmatic based design, mm -hmm. like you would see with other amazing programs and in other institutions, even at the York level, with Y-Space, or when you think about different programs at different universities uh, around the country. So we had to think, okay, since we have nothing to operate with in the very beginning, we're just doing this from scratch, what do we have? And let's think about this like entrepreneurs. So what we did have was a 40,000 plus alumni database of Schulich uh, graduates holding positions of responsibility, authority, or check writing somewhere in the world. So based on that, we designed everything off a community model where it would be all about everybody finding ways to help each other and contribute to each other. Um, and so now we have uh, 4,000 uh, community members that we're working with. Uh, we have uh, 250, 300 very active alumni who are working for us. So although our department is you know, one of the smallest in the school in terms of staff size, we literally have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of team members that are all working actively for us and then extended people who, when we reach out on behalf of the businesses and the students and the alumni uh, businesses and say, hey, we're trying to learn more about this particular sector or make a breakthrough into a contract or even just from the um, fundraising side of things, um, the Schulich alumni from a venture capital perspective they came, uh, you know, we had a, a major uh, mixer event downtown at Bearskin and Parr um, last fall. And we had Jack Fraser from the BDC, who leads the growth fund there, do an on-the-fly count of how much venture capital was amassed in the room just in that moment. Yep. And it was $3 billion that Schulich alumni, and there were big people who were missing from the room, but $3 billion that were there in the room that had responsibility for those funds. So realizing that that was the real power in the real magic, the goal that was sitting here, everything has been designed around that yeah. and how to, how to um, create value out of that for everybody involved in the community. From uh, a personal lens, when I had my startup and we had uh, an intern join us through the Schulich startups, it, it one, you're, you're getting this mentorship and learning from the community and then you're actually getting support to build your business through it both ways hopefully the interns who worked with us and myself learned so much and it's so powerful but hearing you tell that it almost makes me feel emotional to what you've built over time so I'm curious how you feel uh when you when you say the words and you hear what you've actually built from just uh I'm not trapped to, to this now, yeah. like how, how do you, yeah. how are you feeling? Yeah, I feel great. I feel happy. And, um, uh, when I think about it, um, you know, I, I was at the point in originally where all of the introductions, they came from me. I had to make them all individually and I still do a lot of that. Like yeah. every, every day I'm working on putting people together and like creating rapid value where it's like. I know you need this and this person and that, and I put you together and then off you go. And that might just take me like, you know, five minutes or so. Yeah. I tell everybody they need to like do what are called, like I coined them as flippable emails. So you have to come okay. to me with like the subject line flips, the introduction flips, the attachment, the link, everything that is the ask all flips. 
And I just write why I love you at the top of the email and forward it to the person who's going to help you out. So on an average week, I do about a hundred flippable emails for people that are in the ecosystem. And now people come to them that are like, you know, come looking for them that are like not anything to do with Schulich or even York University now. Um, But as we continue to help people out like that, then people will say things like, you know, when you do something to help people out and they say, um, hey, I'll owe you, I owe you a beer. Yeah. And I'll be like, no, 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 you don't owe me a beer, but I'm going to ask you for a favor. And then in the favor will be to help another person out in the community. And so that is what is my greatest pleasure and greatest joy is that what was like the beginning of a, like a principle on how to be generous and help people has now turned into like an ethos of the whole community and people are doing it on their own. Right. And now when we bring these, these significant events together, we will get 250 people out to some of our events then everybody is in that kind of spirit and working together. And when I see it happening on its own, that's like, that's amazing. Because when, you know, when the time comes, when like, you know, not anytime soon, because I'm having a ton of fun and loving building this. Don't say these words. (laughs) I don't want you to go there. Well, when I'm 80, let's say, you know, way down the road and the time comes, I want it to be really self-sustaining and there to be like deep, principles and a culture and an energy inside the thing we've created that it continues to grow and move on. Um, one of the areas that I really, now I have minimal, but learning knowledge, but I had no knowledge was the VC space. And I came to one of the events downtown for the Schulich startups and met two guys there that were both in the VC space and just started peppering them with questions. I was curious. I had no clue what I was talking about. And now we have a little WhatsApp group and we're, you know, I'm, we're always chatting and asking questions and they're learning from me on the brand marketing side. I'm learning from them on the VC side, just what's interesting. So it is really cool to see how this event with hundreds of people there, uh, you just kind of find two people that you connect with and it, you take it offline and you're still part of, you know, hey, are you going to the event tonight? And it just continues to build a community. So I think it's, amazing to see how you built a really successful business with within uh, Schulich, but also a community that will make it self-sustaining because everyone has the same values and lives and breathes what you're creating, which is which is special. Yeah. And we're working to design those things in, in new and interesting ways into uh, different parts of what we do. So for example, now um, we, we, try, we uh, piloted this uh, at a recent event and it was so successful that now we've got a whole group of student ambassadors that are going to be part of this. Okay. So, you know, you come to an event and you're like, you may be like a networking machine and you're just going to go and introduce yourself to all these random people. But also there's a lot of people who get there and they're overwhelmed. Yep. There's 250 people. Who should they be meeting? Where to, who should they be talking to? Yeah. So at one of our last events, we assigned one of our team members, Shrey, to be like the, you know, the key networker. And so... He worked the whole night. His job was to identify people in the crowd who needed to meet each other that would unlock tremendous value for both of them. And so he's working the whole room and going and making pairs in live action as opposed to these email introductions. He's making these live pairs. So now he's designing a whole new team of students who will do this and go into our events and be working on making sure that by the time everybody leaves the room, the right people have all met each other. That's so powerful. And for that, for Shreya, as a, as a skill set themselves to actually be able to network like that is, is huge. But I think it goes to show how I'm such a huge proponent of networking and building those relationships. I think you see that throughout all of these examples, how important that is. Um, not to bring you down, but I want to go back to the thin data, uh, story. And you mentioned that there were some things you loved about exiting and some things that you, uh, maybe reflect on um, more. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about that experience and what it was like going through an acquisition. What did you love about it? What did you struggle with? What do you think about now and wish you did maybe differently? Yeah. And this is something that I think we should talk about more within the ecosystem. And maybe like uh, one day I'll do a special session on this or, or turn it into something a bit more expanded. Um, but, but the thing is, is that even today, when I see certain people have sold their company, um, and everybody's celebrating and they're like, you know, it's a big hooray hurrah thing that's going on. 
then I will send them a note on LinkedIn and I'll ask them if they're okay. Right. And I will check in on them and say, how are you doing with like everything after the sale? And you'd be surprised, but people will say, yes, I'd like to meet with you and talk with you and have lunch. So I go out every once in a while and I just go, I'll go downtown and I'll sit down with someone who sold their business and talk to them about it. And I'll share my story. And then they start to say, yeah, I'm feeling some of those same, same things. I'm experiencing those same things. You know, some people will sell their company and it's just be like, there's a lot of money and that's all they want. And then they'll chase the next thing, which has a lot more money and that will be enough for them. Um, but you know, for, for some of us, there's something about that business that is, you know, tied to our identity and tied to our circles of friends and, um, really can leave you wondering after you've sold it, what, what am I even doing now? Right. And you heard from my like journey, like it took me a while to like find my way to here at Schulich to what my next thing was and what I meant to be. So what, what, what if you don't want to just go create another company and what if it's not enough just to like go invest in things now, when I sold the business, I had like a series of realizations. One was that before that, because of all the years of like not getting paid while I was building it or getting paid less than I was, I never really had much money at all while I was building the company. Then we sold it. We had a bunch of money. I grew up as a kid in Scarborough and I went back to the Scarborough town center a few days after that. And I was like, I think I could like, you know, I can buy now anything I wanted in the whole place. And then I was like, I don't want anything in the whole place. I don't want anything. I want my company back, <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, while, you know, while I don't know whether, you know, I would like rewind time and like keep my company and not sell it because I've enjoyed all this and this has been amazing and I never would have gotten to hear and many other things in life wouldn't have happened if the dominoes didn't fall and I of hadn't course. sold the business. But, you know, it was a real moment where, oh, like, what is my identity and where, who, and what am I in, in the, in the, in, in the world now? Um, you know, my, my closest friends were all people who worked for me or with me. Um, and then I wasn't going to see them anymore because after my earnout was over with the company that I sold it to, then it was time to go home. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a year later I came back to the office and, uh, to visit someone and there was a new reception person and they asked me who I was here to see and if they could help me. And I may or may not have said the words, I am your creator. <laughs> I to which they... <laughs> like, where is my photo? I will bring the painting next time. Yeah. So they were a little bit, anyways, they were a little bit shocked in that moment. <laughs> but, but, um, but it was really like, you know, you know, disorienting. And then also a lot of people, um, you know, said in the space who were like recruiters or friends of mine who worked in that, they were like, well, you're really going to have a hard time because no one's going to hire you for a job because they're all going to think you're going to bolt and start another business or no one's going to take you on as a vice president because they know that you were the CEO of the largest email marketing platform in the country. Right. Then, you know, if you're not the president, are you going to be happy? Yeah. Right. So figuring all that out, thinking about all that and then really like just missing you know, the community that was there in my team. When I left, my team was 114 people. When I announced my resignation, there were people crying and like breaking down in the company in the, in the room when I announced it. And so it was a lot that was lost that, you know, the day that I left, the day I sold, it started the process towards yeah. leaving, but there was a lot that was lost and it put me into a time in my life where also, you know, um, that then, uh, you know, led to like a, a breakdown in my relationship and within my family. And so I became divorced and then wasn't with my kids the whole time. And so all that has led to other adventures and other things and like deep, respectful relationships with, with everybody involved and like ton of time with my kids and all that. But I think that that, that moment in my life really like was like a tough one that led to a, like a lot of, a lot of you know, hard moments. Yeah. So that's why I like check in on people and like, you know, when I can and like, see if they're okay and how they're doing. And I also like uh, suggest to them as well too, that maybe they need to think about 
not rushing into the next thing right away and trying to like say like how many how many people in their life actually get a moment to go maybe i don't want to just be this continuous version of myself maybe i'd like to be a fill in the blank right um i said to my daughter the other day um that uh i had a job that i was going to do when i retire i'm still going to work but i'm going to do this and then she said I think you should be an author. I think you should go and like write books kind of thing. Right. So, but how many times do we get a chance to like, actually kind of like rethink everything. And so when I've spent time with people who have just exited, I've encouraged them to, you know, take a moment and just really think about what is the most important thing to them here. What could they be doing in terms of spending time and leaning into their relationship or their family? Uh, or other skills or talents that they have or dreams that they have or used to have. Yeah. Those things are all there. And before charging into like, just like, I'm just going to go make more money and start another company. How could they kind of like take a pause in that moment and think of it? And I think that's been valuable for people that I've had that conversation. Well, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. Um, I imagine it, it, that point of reflection brings a lot of other questions and when you're in the grind of building a business from, you know, building my own business, although it's very small, but also talking to so many founders, you don't think of anything outside the world of your baby and that baby is your business. And I'm sure it was a point of time of, wow, there's a whole world that maybe I wasn't giving enough attention to or reflecting on. So um, I never really thought you do from an outsider you just see that point as a celebration but you don't think of the person who's going through going through it um and you can't go like you can't go to your whole staff the people around you your friends your family they've just seen this thing happen which is miraculous and you are grateful for and um but you you feel like you cannot say to anyone i'm the saddest i've ever been because they're like what do you have to be sad about you just sold your you're company you're rich now right, right? Yeah. yeah you've got you've got all these all these resources and all this yeah. what are what are you what are you what are you talking about that for so you a lot of it tends to be held inside that if there are feelings you're like is this like is this normal that i might be feeling this way and and some of those conversations i've gone out and had with people then yeah, yeah. they're like yeah, they, I don't feel like I can talk and to anyone about how I'm lonely. feeling right. Very lonely because you achieved this thing that every entrepreneur is working towards and yet you can't, there's not a huge community for you to relate with because it is miraculous to go through that. Um, and I'm sure a bit of guilt of, well, I'm supposed to be really happy because I did the thing. Yeah. And and there's a lot of other emotions. So leading maybe you wouldn't, you know, turn back the clock, but if you were to be in that position again, what are maybe some of the frameworks or thought processes you would use to decide, do I want to exit or do I want to stick with this business uh, for someone maybe in a similar position? Yeah, I think that um, there was some things that we did really well in terms of how we made the decision. And um, those things were around who we were going to sell the the business to. So what I'm very like feel happy about and proud about was that we really thought about like things like what would be the impact on the people that would, you know, that worked for us when we sold the company. Yeah. So we, you know, one of my uh, investors, advisors, uh, Scott Bryan, who used to be the CFO for uh, Grocery Gateway uh, way, uh, back in the, in the dot-com era. And um he made my partner and I sit down and write a list of 10 things that we would compel us to sell the company in a deal, but we could not put anything financial on the list. And so that was really interesting because then it allowed us to be in a position where when some companies did come, because there were 10 or 11 companies that came to bid on, on us when we were sold, and some of them would be in the room basically scheming about who they were going to fire. And you're saying like, we have a, this department, you have a, this department, we can get rid of one of them. Mm-hmm. And like, that was like a gleeful conversation. Yeah. So we were like, no, that's not who we're going to be. So we were able to like make decisions around that. That was, that was really good. And in the end of the day, it turned out that the highest bidder was also the company that checked all the boxes along the way. So we were able to feel nice. good about the decision. I do know that of the companies that came to us, um, 
there were there this was this was the company that fit best and um uh was was kind of in a good position to to fulfill what were our values um what i don't think i wish that we had frameworks for or were better prepared for were about how to enter the personal transition that we just talked about and then also how to transition from being some people get to exit and leave immediately other people we have to stay for a while in the in the acquirers world so i didn't really have any particular coaching on how to go from being an entrepreneur to being an executive inside a multi-billion dollar company and with all the levels of like approvals and you know right you know non process uh you know non-entrepreneurial logic leaps that were like the way we had built everything that we had built so that would have been helpful as well too to have something there and then i think a little bit of like a uh, like a bit of a scorecard or some kind of framework that would say like, if we do sell, this is, these are the things that, um, selling, this is what we, we have to be fully eyes wide open and aware that is going to like mean for the next, uh, next steps in life, both inside that larger corporation and, uh, in, in our personal world as well. It's a, a lot to think through and I'm sure each scenario is going to be different, but it's, I think useful for people to at least know to start asking some of those questions or find mentors within their space to help guide them if they're going through one of, you know, an acquisition or even thinking about what is the long-term plan for the company because I think a lot of people jump to exit, but maybe that's not the right decision for everyone and just thinking through that for yourself. Um, but there, there was a moment last year where we were very fortunate last spring where um, Murray Levine, the CEO co-founder of Waze, Waze yeah. the traffic application, uh, he came to Shulik and we had a huge night. There were 250 people here. And afterwards, we had a small room with a couple of our founders and alumni venture leaders, venture capital leaders, and, um, and for Uri to answer some of their private questions. Right. And one of the founders asked the question, how will I know that the acquirer will um, follow through on what the vision is for my business and what the intention was when I started it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this business is a very social impact focused business. Yeah. So you would hope that if someone was going to acquire it, that they would acquire it because of that. Yeah. And then Uri had the most poignant and deep moment. It was very straightforward. He looked at the founder and he said, do you want the answer or do you want the real answer? Right. And the founder asked for the real answer and he said, the real answer is you don't know and you can't know and you won't know. And you'll only know after it's all done. Yeah. And you have to be okay with that. Yeah. You have to, but even just having a really truthful, direct answer like that, as opposed to everything's going to be okay. It'll all work out. Don't worry about it. Allows you to like be emotionally prepared. Hey, you might be the kind of person that's like, you sell the company and you're like, I don't care. I got my money. Whatever happens to it, it's theirs now. You'll yeah. hear people say this all the time, like it's theirs. But there's another category of founder, which is like, oh, my creation is yeah. being like mucked with now and messed with and uh, maybe grown to a beautiful new thing, but maybe not. Maybe the acquirer is going to like really like distort values or uh, change the original purpose of what it right. was. You have to at least be like, if you have a running head start emotionally to know that that's coming and to make the decision, knowing that that is a distinct possibility, as opposed to realizing that as you're experiencing it yeah. in the middle of it, I think those are two very different paths. Do you think it makes a difference on if you are in a position where you stay on for, say, a year as you transition versus at, at sold, you are exited out of the business? Like- I think so. Yeah, I, I think. I think I've met many entrepreneurs who sold and were gone within like 30, 45 days. Yeah. And I think um, they can look back at it and say, well, I wish they hadn't done what they'd done, yes. but they don't seem as like, you know, emotionally wound up in it. Whereas the ones that I've met, and there are many of them, uh, not all of us get instantaneously exited yeah. and they stay. And um, even some of them that from the outside, we would all think about or know about and actually behind the scenes um 
there's a lot of torment <laughs> going on for the individuals as they've gone through it. And they may be on a board or they may be on an advisory board. They may be on like a contract, but they're still somehow tied into it. Yeah. And they're watching from the inside. And I think, you know, part of it is the actual, like the thing that you created or whether that's the product or the service or the platform and seeing what's being done to it and what's being changed. But really the harder part is, is, is watching how acquirers can treat the people, mm. you know, whether that's the clients or whether the users or, or the, the staff yeah. and the people that, you know, uh, signed up to come work with you and, and had one, one way of living under you, you know, when we, when we sold the business, like one of the biggest shocks was like things related to the HR department, I think. Mm. HR, finance, and real estate were the three, the three biggest ones that were hard to deal with inside a large multi-billion dollar, you know, public company. And so you see how you could make decisions as an entrepreneur and build a community, build a family, build a way of dealing with things. And then there would be like a harshness and an absolute, you know, set of rules related to how dealing with people in certain circumstances. And you go from being like, the founder and my, you know, co-founder and I, the chancellor, we could just say, what's the right thing to do? What do we want to do in this circumstance? Someone, one of our staff one time got involved in like a, you know, a, a major motorcycle accident. Well, how we handled that, right. In terms of like taking care of them and making sure they got back into the business and, yeah. and providing some, you know, extended financial runway and support yeah. compared to how a major company might deal with that not every company but yeah. like a major company a might, deal with that. might deal with it differently yeah and the major company is just coming maybe it's not even like a mean-spirited you know way it's right. just that they're realizing that they have ten thousand plus employees and if they do this for one that it's going to become an expected thing right whereas if you had your company and you're 40 people or 50 eventually we're like 114 you can make a different decision and you can just like do some things that are more grounded in humanity right um we would always say like the that the reason why our staff stayed working for us for so long um even when we sold the business you know one of the things that people would say is that when it, when a when a company gets sold it's highly likely there's an exodus afterwards right where talented people right. start leaving well when we sold like you know uh, thin data two years after the sale 90 percent of the entire staff were still there Right. They were still remaining with the, with the, with the business. We had a very like deep relationship with them. Recruiters would come up to me in town and say like, Chris, I don't understand. Like I offer people $30,000, $40,000 pay raises and they won't leave your company. Wow. Right. And that's how strong, like the, the culture. You, that was a culture. Was, was there the something culture unique? was like when we sit in our, in, in both our hands, we sit in one hand with money and one hand with people. Which one do we choose, yeah. you know, over and over again? And we would always choose people in every moment of every decision. And the money took care of itself. And the business just kept growing and growing yeah. and growing because of that culture that we built. Um, but a lot of organizations are designed to choose the money first and the people second. And um, yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of what you can run into if you're like a founder who has designed a more family-based approach. And then if you're there watching it in real time get dismantled, then that can be tough. Well, I'm sure, although it was hard for you going through that, knowing that there was really high retention even after, so that people who remain there continue to be happy and enjoy the company. So yeah. hopefully uh, um, a bit of uh, light on that scenario. You obviously had a lot of success from Thin Data, and I'm sure you apply that to support the Schulich entrepreneurs that you work with, and there's a lot of them. I'm curious when you reflect both on your time, but also seeing so many different entrepreneurs across so many industries, if there's themes of success, whether it's um, in how they run the business or in a type of founder, what kind of comes to the surface of those themes that result in a successful business? Yeah, the, whether at companies that I've invested in or companies that I'm coaching here at Schulich, um, I really think that one of the fundamental things is the ability to listen. And I've seen seen many times, like early, early in my angel investing, 
the angel investment deals that I most uh, wish uh, I had a, a take back on yeah. were ones where I was like thinking like, I really love the idea and I love like this person's smarts, but my, my gut was saying they don't listen very well. Interesting. Uh, and um, the ones that went, you know, became the biggest successes that I invested in um, are, are people who listen really well and reflect on what they're hearing doesn't mean they run off and just do the last thing that everybody said, yeah. but that they really listen and they take it and they reflect on it and they find ways to design that and on the right parts of it into what they build. Um, and yes, yeah, so the companies that I've, that I've worked with that have that kind of like in the heart of the, the founding group, um, because it's actually not about whether they're like listening to me in the coaching or not. And that is, it's not that I have like every answer or they should do what I'm, you know, suggesting to them. It's more about what I've learned is that it's reflective of how they listen to their staff, to their customers, to yeah. their other investors, to their accountant, to their lawyer, to every. Yeah. So an inability to actually like, you know, take in other perspectives well and wisely and design them into the business. Uh, is actually something that like multiplies over and over and over again throughout the, throughout the company. Um, I learned over time as well too that as I went on with that company that acquired us, I also did some support work on the next wave of companies that they acquired, right? Yeah. And so um, you know, I think this isn't a re you know a revolutionary statement, but I I think that you know ultimately. So many times a company is capped by um, the founder's um, uh, ability or inability to listen and grow and change, right? So if you meet someone early on and they have this like resistance in those conversations, um, I will work with everybody and my, my mission at the school is to like help everybody to move as far as they can, as far forward as they can in their, in their journey. But I do know when I meet people who are good at this or not good at this in the beginning, the ones who really get it, they're already, I can see how far they're going to go. And the ones that don't, I got to work really hard to help them on that particular issue before any other issue can be like figured. In the last handful of episodes that I've done, a theme that has come up from every founder is if I look back on myself over the last six months and I recognize who I am, I'm doing something wrong. I mm. have to be a t I one um, the co-founder of hashtag paid Brian Gold. He said I have to fire myself every six months and rehire the new Brian to take on new roles, to move myself forward, to move the business forward. And I thought, and, and how you're saying it kind of encapsulates that. It's really interesting that you have to grow, and part of that is master classes and reading but it's also listening to the people around you and hearing mm. how am i not a the best leader that i can be how can i change what some of that feedback that i'm getting and actually listen to and adjust and um it's interesting that that's kind of the theme that you're pointing out as well as uh, of what you're seeing as success um, yeah i mean the, it's ev everywhere that you go whether you're whether you're a founder or now in my role here yeah there's many times throughout the last like five, six years of this journey where I've had to learn to um, adapt and change to how I interact with, yeah. communicate with, and provide better partnership to the academics that are in the space because they're coming from a whole different set of worlds and opportunities and, um, and uh, in histories. And so, you know, I, as people have like, offered to teach me different things or explain how different decisions get made, yeah. then um, one path could have been like, well, none of this makes any sense, right? Or another path could have been to like, really like listen and understand it and then find ways to bridge the two worlds, bridge the entrepreneurial, you know, anarchy that is this thing that we're creating with the academic side of the institution as well too. And so, um, you know, I, tr I try to bring that, you know, for myself, try to bring that way of like listening and learning as well. And I'm really lucky. And then I have people like the Dean, Dean's Rec and, uh, and President Lenton from York University as well uh, to provide that kind of like insight and guidance. So I think we should all be listening and all be like learning and open along the way. Do you think if 
someone isn't the strongest listener, that it's something that they can learn to do or or find techniques to become a better listener? Or is that, have you not seen that growth? I've seen people like completely change that, you know? I think sometimes the challenges is that nobody around them knows how to break through mm. and have that conversation. Um, and many times when I've been able to have that conversation with people, they've they've thanked me for it they've been they they want to be more self-aware to that and they want to work on it and they've wanted to to talk about things so for example recently i was at a board meeting with a a company that that i um support and work with as an observer and um you know there was an interaction in the board meeting was a a meeting of the shareholders actually and one of the co-founders leaders had a particular interaction and um, uh, I thought that could be different, and that ha- and, and the way the conversation happened could have like implications as well too, for how people interpret it. And afterwards, the, when the meeting was done, then um, I got a tour of the operation and I met a whole bunch of the staff. And you know, another forty-five minutes had passed, and then I suggested we go and like have a sit down in the boardroom for a moment. And then we just like opened that up and like rewound it and talked about different ways it could have been approached, different statements, questions that could have been asked, role played the whole thing, worked through it together. And I gave like tangible examples for how the, what the value would be of approaching the scenario in a different way, what the impact could be on other types of people who were in the room, uh, other board members or shareholders who that in, that particular interaction didn't involve, but they were an observation. Right. What kind of skills do you want to have by the time it comes to be that you're acquired and maybe you would like to remain on the board of directors for the larger organization that acquires you? Kind of skills, how will that company view your ability to handle those moments? And what I really deeply respect about that particular you know founder in that business is that not only in that moment are they like wide open working through with me role playing um but then they're like i i want more of that can you like you know anytime you see that can you call that out but you have to earn as the coach as the advisor as the board member as the investor whatever to get through and build that connection with someone who has some of those, you know, challenges that they're working right. through or areas of growth that they need to tap into, you need to build like a level of trust and a way of working with them that allows you to get inside yeah. their inside their world and inside their their heart a little bit. I'm sure it's also them seeing where you're coming from. You're not coming to attack them. You're coming mm-hmm. because you're saying, look at all the opportunity you have in front of you. If we can maybe tweak some of these things, we'll be able to uh you'll be able to achieve those things yeah. maybe or that's why I always say like when people will ask me like you know when you when you join the board or when you invest then what would you say Chris is your area of like expertise right mm-hmm. and uh, I will never say my area of expertise is like around a whole bunch of technical aspects of like the particular you know business or some you know wider aspects around the fundraising but what I will tell them is like when you have the five biggest soulful challenges that you have in the history of the business, yeah. or when you have the five biggest opportunities, but you're not sure if they're right, you'll come to me and you'll want me to be the one who's sitting Work with through. you talking through those things, because I'm going to talk to you about like uh, a, a deeper sense of purpose, humanity, and impact to yourself and everyone around you. And if there's something that you need to achieve in that, I'll, I'll help you figure, figure it out how to get there. If you need to go and have like, the hardest conversation with the board that you're ever going to have, yeah. I will help you to architect that conversation and figure out how it's going to come out in a really good outcome. Yeah. So that's what I like to do. Like I like, you know, we work on all the businesses. We definitely support them with like their strategies and their growth opportunities and raising money. And that's all good. But this is the relationship I want with the founders within our community is that when they're like, you know, completely up against the wall or they have this huge opportunity they got to decide on. They're going to, they're going to ask for me to be in the room or to have a private conversation to, to share their thoughts and they can trust me. Uh, incredible. I have my final two questions for you. So 
typically my second last question is a myth that the founder or person on the other side of the conversation wants to dispel. But I know you have a myth that you actually want to reinforce. So I'm curious, very curious to hear what is that myth that is actually true that you want to reinforce and we'll get to the last question. Yeah, I think this is a is a um, starts off as a myth for a lot of people because they fight against it. Okay, right. And they want to believe that it's a myth, but then they eventually come around and figure out that it's not a myth and it's true. So why I want to talk about this one is I want people to get faster to the embracing that this is not a myth. And that is that as it was put to me very early on by my very first coach for my business back in 1995, he said that of all the businesses that he had ever seen succeed, that the realization that every founder had to come to was that despite whatever technical or creative or culinary skill sets they had in creating the things that they were creating, that the thing that was going to separate them in the life or death of the business was whether they could turn themselves into the greatest salesperson in the history of the company. And a lot of people fight against that and they want to hide in the background and they don't want to be the face on Instagram or they don't want to be like, you know, they want to go hire a salesperson. I'm going to get someone to do that for me. I'm going to find the co-founder who's going to, but even if you do find a co-founder, if you're a technical person and you find a co-founder that's really amazing at telling the story, you still got to show up in the boardroom when the acquirer is there to actually communicate what's going on. You yeah. still got to be part of selling a hundred engineers to join the company. You still got to be et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So this one I think is very important. And, and when I started out, I was like, ah, oh, that's not true. I'm just going to hire someone. Yeah. I tried hiring a bunch of people that didn't work out. And then one day I was like, okay, well. He was right. So then I started off working on that and learning how to tell the story, how to pitch, how to communicate and how to win people on board and get them to, you know, join up with what we were doing. So I think that's one that people need to like understand a lot faster, yeah. not a myth. Who, who else to tell the story and by hearts of all the stakeholders involved than the founders. So I think that it's probably a hard one because I'm sure people are just passionate about solving the problem and don't want to have to interact with uh, people, but it uh, makes total sense. And the last question, the podcast is called How I Became. And Chris, throughout the story, you have evolved numerous times that you've shared today. So I'm curious if you were to name this episode, How I Became Fill in the Blank, what would you name today's episode? How I Became a Master Networker and Community Builder. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today and spending some time telling your story. Thank you for being vulnerable. I, I know you shared a lot about your journey and I'm so excited to share the the story and Shulik startups with the audience. Thanks, Kelly. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. How I Became a Bluemex podcast is hosted by Kelly Yafet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.